But I invite you to stand as we read from the Word of God today, from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 12. Uh, let's stand together and um, let's listen to that Word of God that we just uh, asked Him to guide us in. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight pass of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and he saw what had occurred, or when he saw what had occurred, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Our God and Father, we come before you today and are thankful for your word, this eternal word, and we do want you to show us Christ. For in the end of the day, that is what your word points us to and all of its texts and in its direction, it shows us Christ. Because in showing us Christ, it shows us the way to everlasting life and it shows us the way to you. And so, Father, even in this text, there is Christ. Even in this text, there is reason to worship you. Even in this text, there is food for us and direction for us and exhortation to us and warning towards us and encouragement for our life this week. And so, Father, speak, I pray. Make the book live. Make it live for me. Make it live for each one that is here. And Father, may today be a gray when many find Christ as their Lord and Savior. We ask this in the wonderful and amazing name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We have a, a mission statement here at the church which goes something like this, that we are about making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who choose to impact their world. And for the last four and a half years, we have been um, thinking about imagining the impact and looking at different ways in which we can, as a congregation and as individuals, impact our world. One of the things that is um, true, uh, no matter how we go about impacting our world, is that when we take the gospel out to the world, we will face opposition. We will face uh, those who oppose the word of God. And so this text is a little bit of a demonstration of what that looks like. And it is an encouragement, I believe, to you and I to realize that we are in a spiritual battle. We are engaged in spiritual warfare, 
when we are about the mission of the church, when we are about sharing the good news of the gospel. We will find ourselves head on in the battle when we choose to impact the world. And so as we come to this particular passage of scripture, it's a historical passage of scripture which comes at a real crucial time in the church. The first uh, seven chapters of the book of Acts have been all about how the gospel has been going forth into Jerusalem and parts of Judea. And then the next number of chapters from 8 to 12 are about how the gospel has been pushing out into Judea and into Samaria. And now we come to chapter 13 and we find here the beginning of the gospel now going forth to the ends of the earth. And you remember when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, Jesus has said to them, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will, re- you will be my witness and you will re- receive power to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we see that very promise being fulfilled as this gospel now is stretching even farther and farther into the known world. And we find that the gospel is rooted in a Bible-based church. It's the best place to cultivate uh, people who will go out with evangelistic uh, endeavors and with mission endeavors is a Bible-based worshiping church. And it's helpful for us to just get a little bit of a, a reminder of what the DNA of such a church is because this is the kind of church I believe that uh, I am striving for and we are striving for here together to become the kind of church that's reflected here in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. And we have here a church which is really only about two years old, but has got the maturity of a church that is, is maybe 20, 30 years old. And one of the things that has always um, caught my attention as, uh, as, a, as a pastor and just as a follower of Jesus Christ is the fact that chronological uh, age as a Christian often has very little to say with the Christian maturity of an individual. In other words, you might be a Christian for 13 years and, and be very, very mature, or you might be a Christian for 13 years and you're just a babe still in Christ. Why is that? I have seen people who have embraced Christ and they have embraced Christ full on, head on with all their energy, strength, mind and soul. And they suck the scriptures. They, they, they absorb the scriptures. They read, they pray, they study, they talk and they learn and they practice and they grow. And within years, you look at them and you think, wow, what has God done in their life? And then you chat with others who have said they have walked with God for 30, 40, 50 years, and they struggle with some of the most basic truths of Scripture. We see that same thing sometimes worked out in local churches. That You can see churches that have been around for 20, 30 years, and you would expect them to have been churches who have had the gospel proclaimed in them and to them for so many years that they should be a mature church, a growing church, a sending church. And in fact, they are full of those who know little of Scripture. Paul talks about such things in the book of Hebrews. And then you can come to churches that have been around for only years and they are leaps and bounds ahead of so many other churches. What is it that brings a church to maturity? What are some of the, what, what's some of the DNA that, that we might say is, is, is part of a, a church that is a mature church that is ascending church that is a missions oriented church well i think we have a couple of the uh, of of those things that are listed for us in the first 3 verses of this chapter as we reflect on this particular church in antioch one of the things that we see right away is that it was a word based church 
And we see that because the writer there says that there were prophets and teachers there. Plural. There were many of them. There was a plurality of teaching ministries and of prophetic ministries in the church, which means they were a word-based church. And I have shared with you sort of my understanding of prophets, uh, at least from a New Testament perspective over the years. But again, I, I do believe that the gift of prophecy is still at work. Well, I don't believe that the office of prophet is still here. But a, a prophet is, is simply one who takes the word of God and speaks it for edification, encouragement, and comfort to the people of God. Often a, a pastor is one that has the gift of prophecy because it's the ability to take the word of God, expand it for the benefit and the good of God's people. Sometimes we think of prophecy as foretelling and of sharing secrets and of telling the future. I don't see that as primarily the use of that gift in the New Testament. Or it is those that take the word of God and apply it for the benefit of the people of God. And then we have teachers as well who take the word of God and expand it to us and help us to understand it. They explain it to us so we understand it, so we can live it in our lives. And so it is a word-based church. I wonder if this is what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Ephesians. Because he said to them that Christ had given to the church some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the training of the saints in the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ, until we all reach unity of faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. You show me a church where the Word of God is front and center, and I will show you a mature church. And so one of the things that characterized this church in Antioch was it had prophets and teachers who regularly taught the word of God. Another thing that we see here is that it must have been a Christ-centered church and a gospel-based church because of the list of the five men that it gives us here. It talks, it starts there with Barnabas. Barnabas was a Levite. He was of the priestly line. He was born and raised in Cyprus. He was familiar with Gentile culture, and we might even call him a Hellenistic Jew, but he understood Gentiles. And he had heard the good news of the gospel and responded to Christ Jesus. Show us Christ. He saw Christ and he responded. Then we have the next one that's listed, Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger means black. And most people suggest that he was a black-skinned man. Some wonder if he was the same Simon or Simeon who carried the cross of Jesus um, uh, as Jesus was in his final hours of his life. Whether he came from, from Persia or somewhere in Africa, we understood or understand that he too had received the gospel and had accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. Lucius of Cyrene. This was a country in North Africa. Lucius is a, a name that reminds us of, of the Romans, and he was likely uh, probably a Roman immersed in Roman culture. He too had heard the gospel and had responded to Christ. And there, then there's Manian, a member of the court of Herod. This was the Herod who was the son of Herod the Great. This was the Herod who cut off John the Baptist's head. This was the Herod who had a bit part in the trial of Jesus. And this Manion seems to be a young man who was raised to be a friend of this Herod. He was brought into Herod's court and he was raised up with this Herod. And it's striking to me how they can have such parallel lives and yet part so drastically when one hears the gospel. For Manion becomes a teacher and a prophet in the church at Antioch. 
And then we have Saul. We're familiar with Saul, the, 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 the Jew of Jews who took it upon himself to persecute the Christians and the Christian church and how God miraculously stopped him on the road to Damascus and showed him Christ. And he repented of his sins and he became a follower of Jesus Christ. What an expression of a Christ-centered church that it, it reflected the cultural diversity. It reflected the social diversity of that particular city. And so this was a, a church that was um, uh, reflecting Christ. It was also, though, a worshiping church. It was a God-centered church. Notice it says that they were while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... You might think, well, that's just a, a byword and it's just a, a throwaway line. Well, no, I think this tells us something about the church in Antioch. They understood what it was that they were about. They understood the first and the second commandment. They understood their place in this world. They understood themselves in relation to God. They understood that all of their worship, all of their praise, all of their energy was directed towards serving and praising and, and worshiping God above. We don't know what day this was. We don't know um, what were the circumstances around. But we understand that they were worshipping God. And we find some of the components of this worship. Two of them are listed. They were fasting and they were praying. Again, I think this is one of the lost disciplines of Christians today is fasting. I think all of us ought to study it and think about it a little bit more and make it part of our individual worship to God and part of our corporate worship as a people of God. If you've ever wanted to read a good book on fasting, there's a good book and it's by Arthur Wallace and it's called The Chosen Fast. It's about 70 pages, but it's one of the most simplest yet clear explanations of fasting that I have found. And fasting is one of these things that we do as Christians, and it's assumed that we do. Remember Jesus talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. He says, and when you fast, oh, I guess that means that's something they ought to be practicing. When you fast, don't do it like this, but do it like this. We find throughout the scriptures when people were in trouble spiritually, they fasted. We find when people were in need of revelation and direction from God, they fasted. We find that when people were in need of a touch from God physically, they fasted. When people were just crying out to God in repentance, they fasted. And to fast means to go without generally food um, for, for a period of set, for a set period of time, to put aside the physical desires that we have and pour ourselves out before God spiritually. It is a discipline that we need to regain as individual Christians and as a church together. And so they were fasting. And they were praying. And they were calling out to God. Prayer is also part of worship. We do that here when we gather in public. We worship We worship in prayer. We seek a God who hears and answers us. We have a fellowship with Him. We have a relationship with Him. Prayer is simply communion with God. You show me a church that is mature and I'll show you a church that is fasting and praying and worshiping God. Not only that, loved ones, it was a spirit-led church. Now, don't get all scared on me, but I think it's important that we understand the place of the Spirit of God in church life. And I think for too many years, too many Christians have been afraid of the Spirit. They've been afraid of the Spirit's leading. They've been afraid of the Spirit's work. And yet, as we've been going through Acts, 
I don't know if you've just observed, even to the point where we've come now, how regularly the Spirit is engaged in those Christians' lives. How it's the Spirit that fills them. It's the Spirit that directs them. It's the Spirit that says, do this. It's the Spirit that says, go there. And even in this particular passage, it says here in verse 2, that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Spirit said to them, set apart Barnabas and Paul for the work that I have called them to. That ought not scare us. That ought to rather drive us and say, how does that happen? How do we discern the voice of the Spirit of God? How do we as a people know that it's the Spirit that's leading us and not just my desires as an individual or as a church? Well, I think in part it may be that the Spirit gave a strong word through one of the prophets. And one of the prophets stood up and says, you know, God has been impressing upon me through his spirit that we need now to engage in evangelistic work to the Gentiles. And that would have been how the spirit spoke. Or maybe the spirit spoke through the word of God as they were reading the word. And all of a sudden they were just impressed that this is not our desire. This is not something we've thought up. But God is pushing us in this direction. Or maybe as the church was worshiping and praying, there was this groundswell that happened within them. And they said together, we've got to listen to this. We've got to respond to this. We're all feeling the same way. It must be the spirit of God. But they were a spirit led church. Now, Spirit-led doesn't mean we just get this impression from God and that we run with it. Notice it says that the Spirit said this, and then it says, then after prayer and fasting, they laid their hands on them. I think the church and us, we, we look for confirmation. We look to see if what we believe the Spirit is saying for us is really what the Spirit is saying to us. But nonetheless, beloved, they were a Spirit-led church. We ought to cultivate a sense of um, 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 learning to hear and discern the voice of the Spirit in our lives. So that when we're walking into McDonald's and we pick up our cup of coffee and all of a sudden we see somebody sitting by themselves and we know when the Spirit says to us, go and sit beside that individual and have coffee with them. Or when we see somebody working in their yard and normally we would just walk by them, but the Spirit of God says, go and just chat with them for a minute or on the bus, or in our workplace, or, or with our family. We learn to discern the voice of the Spirit who leads us and guides us and says, go here, don't go there, do this, do that. I believe one of the marks of a mature church is they are a Spirit-led church. And it's evident because a human-led church will run out of steam. And finally, it was a mission or an evangelistically inclined church. They weren't just worried about a holy huddle. They weren't just worried about themselves. They had great compassion for the lost. They had a great sense of urgency that the gospel go forth. You notice that in verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on Paul and Barnabas and they sent them off. Two of their best and their brightest, they sent them off. Even though it would have been at great cost to them, they sent them off. They heard the voice of the Spirit. They understood the need to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so they sent these men off. Beloved, this is the DNA of a missions-inclined, evangelistically-oriented church. Rooted in the Word of God. Christ-centered, God-honoring, Spirit-led, evangelistically inclined. May God help us 
to become like that. And then we see an example of what this looks like as they, as Luke shows us what this looks like at ground zero, so to speak. This is sort of like missions now on the ground. The church has done its work and now individuals have gone out. And there's a couple of things that, that we notice very quickly that are just basic components, again, of missions. And, and I just say them quickly to you. Notice in verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Loved ones, we don't want to go anywhere or do anything without the Spirit of God. We want to be those who are directed and led and guided by the Spirit. And so they were sent out by the Spirit of God. Secondly, they, they went to Cyprus. There was a geographic location. There was an individual spot where they went. Whether the Spirit told them that or whether it had been something burning in their hearts, they went somewhere. And then thirdly, and I think almost most critically, what did they do? They proclaimed the Word of God. Loved ones, we become so easily sidetracked into things that we think are important, things that we think will ease us into the gospel with a community, things that we think will build us a relationship, that will give us a door. And in the end of the day, I know no other thing than what the Scripture says, go with the Word of God. Speak the gospel. And it says they went from one end of the island to the other end of the island, speaking the Word of God. That doesn't mean there's not a place for the social gospel. That doesn't mean there's not a place for, for missions trips that build things and that, 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 that help things. But those will not save. They may open a door to the gospel and there's a very clear need for those things. But the primary responsibility of the church is to share the word of God. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's basic to our mission. And then... We see two components, which I just noted for me, which, which seem obvious, but sometimes we seem to forget them. And that when we present the gospel and when we're involved in missions, two things happen again. It's personal and it's word-orientated. You notice, I think Luke could have given us a whole number of examples here. After all, it's 90 miles as far as the crow flies from Salamis to Pamphos, from one end of Cyprus to the other. But I imagine they had done a zigzag from one side to the other, back and forth to every city, and they finally ended up in Pamphos. I would have believed that after months of doing that, they had tons of stories about the power of God and what he was doing. But Luke pulls out one particular story to illustrate to us what happens when we go out into the world with the gospel. And it's personal. Loved ones, it's face to face. It's it's talking to individuals. And that matters. And here we have they meet he, he describes two people to us. One is this false prophet, Bar Jesus. Bar Jesus is a way of saying son of. So it, it might have been son of Jesus or son of salvation. That was this man's name. He was a false prophet. Better understood, he was a magician. Or he was a diviner. Or he was involved in the occult. Or when the, when the king needed or the, the, the proconsul needed to make a decision, he might take a, a goat and take its entrails and throw them out and read the entrails and say, well, this is the decision that you need to make. Or he might consult the stars and look at the stars and say to Sergius Paulus, well, this is where you need to go or this is what you need to do. And so he was the personal um, magician, diviner, counselor of Sergius Paulus. And then we have Sergius Paulus, who was a proconsul. 
A proconsul would be what we would call Christy Clark, um, premier of the province, or what we might call a governor of a state, a highly influential, powerful position. That was kind of the scope of his administration. And, and it says here that not only was he a man of position then, but he was smart. It's very clear that he says here he was intelligent. He was a man of intellect. And he summoned Barnabas and Saul and says, I want to hear the word of God. Personal confrontation with the gospel. And that's what they declare to him, the word of God. Again, they talk about Jesus Christ. They talk about, they they would have told to him how Jesus was revealed in Moses and the prophets and the wisdom literature. They would have talked to him about sin and how sin separates us from God. They would have talked to him about how the wages of sin is death and that death is eternal separation from God. They would have talked to him about how when we sin, we are come under the judgment of God. And if we only stand before God on ourselves, we're hooped and we will spend an eternity separated from him. But God has provided this amazing gift In Jesus Christ, who has taken our place, who has paid the penalty for our sins. He has died in our place. He has paid for our sins. And he has raised from the dead. And if we will but put our faith and trust in him, we will have life everlasting. They would have shared that with Sergius Paulus. But as you can say, and if you've done any witnessing whatsoever, been involved in any missions where you've been declaring the word of God, you know that you can expect opposition. And notice, that's what we find in, in verse um, 8. But uh, now it changes his name. But Eliamis, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Beloved, this is serious stuff. And this is true stuff. This is the human opposition that we will face When we go out with the word of God. Because it is a battle. It is a war. This is eternal stuff. This is not just a matter of opinion. This is a matter of life and death. And there is a wicked one who is at war with this world. Seeking to distract it and blind it and keep it away from the good news of the gospel. This Eliamis knew that his job was on the line. He knew that if Sergius Paulus responded to the word of God. He would be out of a job. And being out of a job, he would be out of a source of income. He would be out of a place of influence. He would be out of the sort of the the power position that he was in at this particular time. And he knew enough about the word of God to know that it was incompatible with what he was about and with what the word of God was about. And so he opposed the gospel, tried to turn away this pro-council. Beloved. It is nothing new to have advisors like this. I could name to you names of politicians that you know from North America who have spirit guides, who have psychists, who have personal people who advise them on decisions they make and they are involved in the occult. It has been the history of mankind. Whether we start with today, whether we go back to Hitler, whether we go back to the pharaohs, whether we go back to Nebuchadnezzar, because people in positions of power want to maintain those positions. People in positions of power want to continue to know what's coming ahead. And so they go after people who lie to them and seek to give them truth about the future which they cannot have. 
And so they get magicians, they get tarot card readers, they get psychics, they get channelers to hopefully give them the foot up or the leg up that they need in order to stay ahead of their opponents. And you might think, well, that's politicians and that's world leaders. That's also individuals. You don't know how many people in our community read the horoscopes every day. You don't know how many people in our community go to channelers and psychic readers and have their have tarot cards read on their behalf. You don't know how many people are consulting with the forces of darkness to know who they should marry or should they take this job or should they not take this job or what should they do in this situation or what should they do in that situation. They are hungry for direction. And there are almost limited numbers of charlatans who will lie and give them false direction. And so Elymas was one of these individuals. Beloved, the Bible doesn't tell us to avoid these such of things because they don't work. It tells us to avoid them because God says avoid them. Because they are full of lies and deceit. They will make you promises that they don't know and that they can't keep. They will get you into living lives of self-fulfilled prophecy that will lead you down a road of destruction and danger. The only place that we go for counsel and for wisdom about the present and the future is in the word of God. Consider this also that the opposition to the gospel is nothing new. People are constantly trying to dissuade others from responding to faith in Christ. I've seen this personally. I've chatted with people who, 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 who their, one spouse is interested, the other isn't. And the one that isn't thinks, well, I'll have to give up my Sunday. I'll have to give up some of my Monday. I'll have to change my behaviors. I won't be able to do this. I won't be able to do that. And so they try and convince the other spouse to not listen to the gospel and to stay away from it. Or it might be a good friend who you've got a great friendship together, but one knows the consequence of the gospel will mean that they will lose their friend because they will give up one lifestyle and embrace another lifestyle. We face opposition constantly with the gospel because there are consequences to following Jesus Christ. And behind that opposition is a spiritual reality. It's this demonic opposition to the gospel. And Saul, who has now called Paul for the first time, I think he must have had this in mind when he wrote to the Ephesians. He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Sometimes we think, well, we're opposing a, a, a human body. Well, no, behind that is a spiritual reality. And he says there that we're fighting against rulers and authorities and world powers of this darkness, spiritual forces in, of evil in the heavens. Beloved, behind human opposition is very real spiritual opposition. And you know where we see that? Look at what Paul says. And notice again, but Paul on his own strength. That's not what it says. It says, but Paul, filled with the Spirit. Beloved, we don't go into battle by ourselves. We don't go in our own strength. We don't go in our own wisdom. We don't go with all the answers, but we go filled with the Spirit. And notice what he says to him. You son of the devil. Now, I've never said that to anybody. Um, I hope the Spirit never prompts me to say that to anyone. But it's true. And I think he was maybe making a play on the name Bar-Jesus. 
Because that was his Jewish name, and it should have been son of Jesus or son of salvation. And really what he was, was bar Satan. He was a son of the devil. And beloved, I don't take any joy or delight in saying this. But at the end of the day, there are only two options. There are only two families on this earth. You are either a child of the Father who is below, or you are a child of the Father above. There is no third or fourth or fifth option. And Paul says to this man, you are a son of the devil. You are an enemy of righteousness. That's what we're all about. That is what God is. God is righteous. That is what he calls us to is a life of righteousness. And this Eliamus was doing everything to betray that righteousness. He was leading in unrighteousness and in ungodliness. And so Paul confronts him and says, you are against what God is for. You are full of all deceit and villainy. You are a liar and your behavior is wicked and criminal. Your intentions are not good. Your loyalty to Sergius is questionable. You don't have his best interests in mind, not his temporal interests and not his eternal interests. And then the kicker, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Beloved, this is serious stuff. Because when you oppose the word of God, when you oppose the righteousness of God, you are opposing God himself. And you are subtracting or adding to the word of God in order to oppose the word of God. Some here today may be opposing the word of God. You may be here this morning, but you're not happy about being here. You're not happy that your spouse is seeking God. You're not happy that your sisters and brothers are seeking God. And you're opposing the things of God. I say to you, be careful. Be careful. Because when you oppose the word of God, and when you seek to turn somebody away from believing in Jesus Christ, you're attacking God himself. Be careful. I suspect that many of you will have occasion to speak for Christ. And I trust even this week, you and I will have occasion to speak for Christ. Do not be afraid, beloved. Do not be intimidated by intellect or power. I I think I would have been shaking in my boots, and I would. If Christy Cart flowed me and said, Paul, I'd like to have you come and talk to me about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'd be afraid. I'd be nervous. But why? I have the Spirit of God in me. Whether it's her or any other leader, I don't go in my own strength and in my own wisdom. I go in the strength and the wisdom of the Spirit of God. So, beloved, when you go to share the gospel this week, don't shake, don't tremble, don't lack courage, but say, Spirit of God, fill me afresh and give me words to speak. And then finally, we have here, which I think is the confidence that we must embrace. And I believe it's a confidence that we need to figure out. It's from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Why do we so often cower from speaking the word of God? Why are we afraid to speak the word of God from our pulpits? 
It ought not to be so. Our confidence is in the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you're praying for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ, have the courage to speak to them the word of God because that is the power of God unto salvation. You know, it's verse 12 what it says. Then the proconsul believed. I love that. A man of intellect, a man of power, a man who had no background in Christian things, a man who had been led by a magician for how long, heard the gospel, saw the power of God, and believed. It says that he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Beloved, the teaching of the Lord is astonishing. It's like nothing you ever hear or will hear because it's truth and it resonates in the heart of all of us. May God help us to be such a church as described here, a church in which God is worshipped, where Christ is honored and glorified, where the Spirit is consulted on decisions that we make, where we are going forth as a church in missions and evangelism. And may God give us the boldness and the courage of a Barnabas and a Saul, to take the word of God despite the opposition we might face in the power of the Spirit and see men and women, boys and girls, changed eternally because they believe in the good news of the gospel.